All right. Welcome to another episode of Sokka's Is That So. Today, I'm speaking to a very special guest. Um, you might have seen him on Twitter or LinkedIn because he's pretty active there. Uh, but I'm speaking to Ali Jamal, the uh, managing partner of First Check Ventures. Welcome to the show, Ali. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, why don't we go back to the genesis or origin story, so to speak? I noticed that you got a, a bachelor's from Stanford um, in economics, but then somehow ended up as a VC now today, uh, raising your funds. So kind of walk us through a quick synopsis of how that, that journey went and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, I started my career uh, as an investment banker. I did uh, mergers and acquisitions, acquisitions for three years but uh, wanted to get more hands-on. So uh, I made the jump back to the Valley, started working as a data scientist. I did that for three years, but uh, still felt like I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to. And so starting in 2013, I made the jump into product and growth for mobile app companies. And I've spent the last decade doing that. So I was a growth product manager at Zynga, the mobile gaming company. Then went to a competitor of theirs called Rock U. I uh, was at Rock U for about four years and then got recruited uh, by a company in, in, in Thailand called Agoda, which is uh, Asia's largest online travel agency. I moved to Bangkok, Thailand to lead marketing innovation for them, uh, led their display marketing and their mobile growth. And then I saw the rise of Super App in Asia, wanted to be part of the next one. So I reached out to the founders of Rappi, ended up moving to Bogota, Colombia to lead their performance marketing team, and then ended up getting recruited out of there to join Payclip. And I moved to Mexico City to lead Payclip's growth and performance marketing teams. Payclip became Mexico's largest fintech and first fintech unicorn. But uh, you know, I was there kind of during the pandemic, didn't really know anybody, didn't have any friends. And I kind of needed something to keep myself busy. And I'd been an investor on the side for quite a while. And so I decided to put more attention to that. I started an angel syndicate called First Check Ventures uh, for nights and weekends and, and just projects and a good way to reconnect with people. Uh, started that in July of 2020 and then have kind of grown the syndicate. I ended up leaving uh, my job at Clip after uh, 18 months. And uh, I'm now kind of working on uh, investing in, in kind of pre-seed, seed stage companies uh, full time. Fantastic. And how has that knowledge of um, sort of mobile growth marketing served you as an investor or when you started out your syndicate? Did it make you better able to spot good companies or help them in some way, shape or form? How did that kind of translate? Yeah, both. I, th I think growth is one of those things that's really fundamental to early stage startups. And so having understanding of what good growth looks like, being able to advise on different sorts of product or growth strategies, um, being able to kind of compare my experiences in these other markets and the things that I saw that worked, you know, at unicorns like Clip or Rappi or, or you know, large public companies like Agoda. Uh, I was able to take some of those lessons and help translate them into early quick wins for some of these startups that I'm investing in. And also just in general, kind of give feedback and guidance on, you know, what they're building. And then on, on the other hand, as an investor, it helps me know what good looks like, right? I, I can 
kind of set the standard of what should you know the you know runway look like and what what should users be doing and, and what does good retention look like and really kind of being able to understand does the company have product market fit does it make sense for us to invest in them at this time absolutely so what are some of those things uh that you learned either technically tactically or strategically that were good growth strategies and those things that were bad was there certain things that you learned or certain things you looked out for yeah i think the big thing is you know understanding your customers and both from a you know uh experience standpoint of, of talking to them uh learning from them engaging with them but also from a data standpoint right and, and and understanding who those customers were what they liked all those sorts of, of of different pieces of information i think you know the best companies have a really great understanding of who their customers are and why they're customers and the problems they're trying to solve and you know there's also times people try to force product market fit right they try to go out and spend a bunch of money to acquire customers before they really have it they they spend a lot of money trying to keep them giving them discounts giving them coupons uh you know doing whatever they can do to uh keep these users engaged when they haven't actually built a product that those users want and so i think for me it's it's really kind of being able to dig in and understand is this something that people actually want Absolutely. I remember when I was a product marketer as well, we used to look at things like, you know, conversion rates or how long people would spend on the platform or how often they would refer people. And then we'd kind of benchmark those against competitors or other offerings to know if this was a, a good uh, strategy. Is that kind of the same thing you would do as well? Or kind of what metrics did you look at? Yeah, it's a lot of those same metrics. It, it, it's, uh, you know, it's different for every business. And so understanding why a certain business is looking at different sorts of metrics or, or how they're kind of approaching their business. Um, and oftentimes I'm not actually trying to force my way of looking at it on them, but really try to understand what they're, what they're doing and how they're evaluating their own business. Right. And if it makes sense to me, the approach to taking the KPIs, then uh, kind of going from there. So really trying to focus on what, what their thought process is and, and if they're approaching things in a way that is sustainable. Absolutely. And speaking of thought process, what was kind of your thought process when you were choosing the startups to invest in as an angel? Did you have a specific hypothesis or how did you kind of go about choosing what to invest in and what not to? So initially it was just kind of trying to find great companies and, and being open to what that means. I think over time, I've started to refine that thought process more and more and started to develop more of, of a clear thesis. So, you know, I get really excited about uh, companies that are, you know, kind of creating these, these basic fundamental layers that people need and want. And I especially like it in emerging markets. I think in a, in a lot of these markets, uh, you know, they're just being overlooked and there's, just a lot of difficulty and, and challenges that don't exist in, you know, the U.S. or Europe or China that exist in countries like Nigeria or India or Brazil. And so, you know, seeing the ways that the U.S. was able, able to overcome this or how Europe was able to overcome this and replicating some of those same strategies to build 
a, a business in, in these other markets, you know, fundamentally, I think people are the same and, and they want the same sorts of things. It's so if you have a company that was really successful in the U.S. doing something and being able to take that and, and translate it into that local market and build what that local market needs, I think, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you see that throughout history, like there's the Uber of Dubai. Uh, there's like the Amazon of China, right? Um, so sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world to, I don't say copy, but kind of take from a developed market and deploy that in an emerging market. What are the challenges you've found that companies face when they try and translate that sort of developed market platform or tech to an emerging market? Are there some common themes that come out? So, you know, I don't like to think of it as just copying, right? I think that you have to adapt it for the local market, but understanding what made that initial business successful, I think is really the key part. And when we look at a lot of these companies uh, that are kind of, you know, considered the Uber for X or, or the, you know, Amazon for Y, you know, they might've started out like that, but I feel like they evolved very quickly mm. into offering even more services or a more unique product and, and having, uh, you know, even more of a product market fit. And so I think we often kind of hear about this and people look down on it, but it, it's more of a fact that like that is the base that that kind of works and it kind of gets you in the door. And then how do you expand out and what additional things do you offer to kind of keep your customers? So I think a lot of it has to do with adapting for the local market and, and understanding uh, what are the things that, are there and how are people doing it? So when you look at a lot of, you know, the markets in, in Asia, for example, you know, with their, you know, Amazon equivalents, because credit card penetration is so low, they'll often have like options to pay at the local 7-Eleven, right? Because there's 7-Elevens everywhere. Mm. And so they've, they've been able to translate, you know, the, the overall market experience, but then having that in-person final last, last mile because that's what you know local people are more used to. And, and so, you know, I think that there is this ability to adapt where uh you know I can't pay for anything online or any of the things I buy online, I can't really pay for offline in the US, right? Like I can't just go and, and, and pay for it in the cash I have if I'm don't have a bank account or, or if I have a lot of extra cash because I'm somebody who primarily transacts in cash. And and, and so you know, in these businesses where they're, or in these markets where there's a lot more people who do cash transactions, it makes sense. And, and so in some ways, some of these other markets are actually further ahead, I think. Absolutely. Like in Kenya, they had mobile money and people paid via text message way before Venmo or anything in the U.S. kind of developed. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, and uh, yeah, well, one thing that you mentioned earlier on was about the super app as well. It's so interesting how you get those in mostly Asian economies, but we haven't really had one in the U.S. or I guess in developed markets. Why do you think that is? And do you think we're kind of moving towards that super app where Uber is everything from your delivery to, you know, uh, everything in, in one place? Do you think we're going in that direction? You know, I think I think we're seeing some examples of that, right? With, with Uber itself and, and how they you know launched Uber Eats. And you have Uber, the the, the you know pure car ride. Uh, you know, I, th I think we'll start to see some of this stuff over time. I think part of it is in a lot of these other economies, so much of the stuff is is sort of uh, there aren't options, right? So like you have 
one electric company. And, and so everybody has to pay the electric company. And so it's very easy to like build in some service to pay the electric company, like for a large group of people. Whereas, you know, in the US, every municipality has its own separate, you know, company you have to go through one by one. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, in a lot of these places, you know, there's 7-Eleven and 7-Eleven is ubiquitous. But in the US, there's a bunch of different types of convenience stores or gas stations. And so you'd have to go and partner with all those different varieties, which I think makes it tougher. Um, and, and so I think part of it is is that element of it, that that the uh, U.S. just there's a lot more competition and uh, a lot more different options. And I think that's probably what's stopping the super app from really developing uh, in the U.S. at this point is, is uh, each of those separate businesses it's hard to really focus and grow them properly and so each there, there's companies that specialize in separate segments that do a really really good job all that segment and solving the problems for that segment and so it's hard for somebody to come in and attack those other segments right so uh you'll often see you know in these other markets you have you know grocery delivery car services but then also you know, shopping. And then you also see things like payments or fintech services. But in the US, you know, one, we don't have just one kind of fintech company, right? Or one bank, like there's a ton of different banks, a ton of different states have different regulations. Um, and, and you know, the fintech services that were being offered are actually usually pretty good already. And so a basic service from uh, Uber Bank probably wouldn't be that popular. Whereas in these other markets, the, you know, there isn't as much competition. And, and so even having a basic online bank or, or a way to pay people, right, like a Rappi Pay or, or Alipay or whatever, uh, you know, it, it's much easier to use that than to try to build your own Venmo or have a separate user base for a product like that. Right. So I think part of it is just uh, the competition and, and, you know, how the market itself is already evolved. Absolutely. And so now that you've put your investor hat on and you're kind of, you know, going full on into your fund, what kind of excites you the most about the VC landscape today? And I guess what also scares you at the same time? So, you know, I've been hyper-focused on investing in the earlier stages of companies. And I think that continues to be a point where there's just a lot of opportunity and where angels can actually have a big impact. So that continues to really excite me. I think, you know, we have a lot of unknowns about, you know, the future right now and what that means for large scale companies. And so it's hard to kind of really imagine what the five year to 10 year horizon might look like. Um, and, and whenever you're investing in a company, you're kind of making this five year to 10 year bet. Um, but with, with all of these different sorts of, of you know, questions around, you know, what is the future of work and what does that mean for the future of cities? Uh, you know, how, what, which elements of, of the pandemic are going to be permanent changes and which things are we going to go and adapt back towards, you know, our prior state towards, um, you know, just large kind of uh, geopolitical risks and, and the situations that are happening on a global scale and, and, you know, depending on which news channel you watch, we're either you know, a month away from World War Three, or or, or <laughs> you know, everything's going to be great, right? So, um, 
what depending on your perception of that or how some of these things shake out, um, uh, what happens in in you know the next election cycle, both in the US and also some of these other markets, right? Like a bunch of other countries are going through elections with you know people that have gone through a lot of stuff with lockdowns and, and COVID and economies in general. Some are overheating, some are are you know depreciating and and and, and slowing down. And so just this overall mix of, of questions out there uh leave the future very uncertain and so when yeah. you're trying to make a bet on what does this mean for 10 years down the line i think it gets to be more complicated especially as you're betting on bigger bigger companies right so i think these early stage companies in some way it's it's even easier because you kind of are betting on the zero to one um but i have no clue what's going to happen with a lot of these you know huge public companies or unicorns uh, and how this uh, uncertainty in the future might affect them. Yeah, I'm most nervous about the concentration um, within the VC space. So I read a stat that 67% of LPs are deploying their capital into like 6% of funds. And it's usually the large funds that are out there, which means kind of following the trend of the general economy where there's more inequality and a higher concentration of wealth amongst a certain few. I see the same thing in VC where emerging managers are scrapping just to get, you know, a million dollar fund together. Meanwhile, these big boys are raising even larger funds, kind of sucking in all the capital. I don't know if you're ever concerned about that, but do you, ever, do you think that this concentration within a few VC hands is maybe kind of not serving the innovation ecosystem in the best way possible and kind of just reinforcing inequalities or? So I think there's a lot to unpack there, right? And, and, and part of it is understanding where these dollars are coming from. So when we talk about, you know, all these LP dollars that are going to these big funds, uh, I think that tends to be, um, you know, kind of more, institutions in and what they're looking for right so it's the harvard and stanford endowments it's large insurance companies that they're making their investments on, on things right um and so they're trying to deploy not millions right but billions of dollars um and so then you end up with these mega funds that are having to figure out what do we do with these billions of dollars and and how do we predict the future that is still you know liquid enough for these endowments to get their money back if they need it, but is really with a 50, you know, year plus horizon in terms of the growth, uh, right? Which I think is kind of an interesting dichotomy versus, you know, most of the LPs that, you know, small fund managers have are more, you know, individual high net worth individuals who are, you know, one kind of look like writing smaller checks in the hundreds of thousands or maybe small single digit millions. And then two, you know, they're really thinking about it in terms of a, you know, five, 10 year, 15 year liquidity cycle, right? Like they're not necessarily thinking about it for, you know, uh, an endowment, like, like a diamond where they were thinking about 50 years down the line. Um, and so I think that you start to see this kind of divergence in, in, in you know, thought process of what's uh you know, these emerging managers do and how they think about their businesses and the kinds of risks that they have to take versus these larger institutions and, and how they go about the process. And then also just a difference in, in priority, right? Like um, as an emerging manager, I'm really looking at uh, how do I get, you know, 10x, 100x returns. Whereas I think when you're trying to deploy 
you know, if you have a, a hundred billion dollar fund, you're trying to think about not just how do I get good returns, but how do I get good returns for a large amount of capital? Right. So investing half a million, a million dollars in, in as pre-seed or seed just isn't isn't good enough for them, right? Like like even if they do well, they still haven't done enough to really make a difference for their fund. Um, and so I think all these things are kind of changing like where the competition is and, and how the fundraise cycle works. And we see a lot of those institutional dollars then pour into the series B's and C's and D's. We saw a lot more, you know, companies waiting to become unicorns or decacorns before going public, right? Whereas uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, those companies were going public at much earlier and lower valuations, right? Probably even similar to what we see now in the series B, you know, used to go public. Uh, and, and so I think there's this transition of, of um, corporate overhead that also happens then when you're able to stay private longer um, and, and lack of oversight, right? When, when you're a public company, there's just different level of scrutiny that you're going through. Um, and so all these things have kind of pluses and minuses of, you know, either increased efficiency, but less oversight, uh, you know, where the dollars are going and why they're going there. Uh, and really, you know, kind of based on the different timelines of, of the people involved. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We got to have you back on for part two. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ali. And uh, we'll be sure to send our audience your way on LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the different channels to get in touch with you. But uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you.